Toddler Nursery and the Children's Church can be dismissed at this time. Those who will be remaining in the sanctuary, if you would please turn over to Psalm 48. Psalm 48. Beginning in verse 1, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. God in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. For lo, the kings assembled themselves. They passed by together. They saw it, then they were amazed. They were terrified. They fled in alarm. Panic seized them there. Anguish. As of a woman in childbirth, with the east wind, you break the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish her forever. Selah, we have thought on your loving kindness, O God, in the midst of your temple, as is your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion and go around her. Count her towers. Consider her ramparts. Go through her palaces that you may tell it to the next generation. For such is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us until death. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for its truth. Thank you for its power. Thank you for the way it corrects our thinking. Father, thank you for the way it guides our hearts. Thank you for the way it conforms us to the image of Christ. And Father, this morning, as we share this time together around your word, may the Lord Jesus Christ be exalted. May he be magnified. May his beauty and his truth and his glory and his splendor and his goodness be made known clearly to us. Father, transform us into the image of Christ Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen. So this morning, we get to see Jesus Christ, the glory of Mount Zion. And so we're going to talk about Mount Zion in a little more detail in a moment, because that is <clears throat> the theme of what's happening in Psalm 48. But it starts out in the first section, verses one through eight. With this declaration that great is the Lord. Amen. Okay, good. All right. Some of you were paying attention. Um, That is worthy of making the declarative amen. The fact that God is great. Great is the Lord. And there's a call to worship that takes place with this. So great is the Lord. Therefore, he is greatly To be praised. And then there is a description given of Mount Zion, the location where this praise should take place. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. 
God in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. And so there's this this wonderful description given here. And of course, it continues. If we were to push all the way through to the end of verse eight, lo, the kings assembled themselves. So there's these nations that gather to see Zion. They passed by. They saw it. They were amazed. They were terrified. They fled in alarm. Panic seized them. Anguish as a woman in childbirth, breaking apart the ships. Uh, and as you've heard and as you've seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, the city of our God, God will establish her forever. And so there's this Description of this city, which is the central location for the praising and the worshiping of this great God. Now, let's let's just kind of walk through a couple of pictures that we see with Mount Zion here in these first few verses. First, it is on a beautiful elevation. Now, I've talked from this pulpit and then in private with people that that want to know. Uh, the Dancy family, just by default, are beach people. We love the ocean. We love the sand. We love the smell of it. Uh, uh, people have even said to me there have been those really rare times where it's, it's more than a 12-month block of time before I get to go to a beach. And they can tell that I'm starting to transform into some creature-type thing that's not really human anymore. And they, then I get to go to the beach and I come back and like, wow, you're so much of a better person now than what you were becoming, you know, like almost like Gollum from Lord of the Rings. You know, it's like, I've got to have the beach. It's my precious, but I really do love the creative power of God in other environments and a, a, a distant second, cause nothing comes close to the beach for me, but a distant second for me, first place for some of you, are the mountains. Man, mountains are a trip. I mean, like, I remember years and years ago uh, uh, when my knees didn't hurt as bad and I had way more hair. And I was a youth pastor. And we took, for some insane reason, we took 50-some-odd 7th and 8th graders on a cross-country mission trip from Mississippi up to where the Grand Tetons are. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I know. I got lots of jewels in that crown. So uh, to throw down at the feet of Jesus. Um, and so, you know, you're on this long trip and you're seeing all this stuff. And then, you know, you kind of start winding and things start elevating. And I distinctly remember, you know, we kind of we're coming around, we're traveling. We come into this clearing and there they are. We're still not close to them. But you can see them like it's going to be a while before we get there. But there they are. These massive mountains. Beautiful is what they were. Beautiful. This is the description that's being given a, 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 an idea of, OK, let's talk about Mount Zion. Beautiful in elevation. When, when you come up on a legit real mountain, not a rolling hill of East Texas, a legit real mountain, and you come up on it, there's something kind of overwhelming about its elevation, about its height, about how big it is. And then when you start thinking, hey, people have built stuff up there and they live up there. And we're going to try to get up there to where they are. It's overwhelming. 
There's a reason why kings who live near mountains tend to put their palaces in the top of the mountains. There's a reason why there's a bunch of castles in the upper portions of some of the Swiss Alps in Europe. Not only is it beautiful, not only is it awe-inspiring, but as we'll see in a minute, it's also a great mechanism for defense. It's really hard to raid the castle if you've got to climb straight up the side of a mountain to get to it. And so there's this beauty to just being elevated. Now, notice what it says. And this is really remarkable. This great Mount Zion, this location of greatly praising the Lord who is great, is the joy of the whole earth. Really? The joy of the whole earth. Now, just just for kicks, because this is going to help prove a point. We're going to take a quiz. Everyone will pass. The only way you fail is if you don't participate. How many of you, with your own eyes, not on the internet, not a Google search, not in a book, not at the library, not in a movie, with your own eyes, have seen in Israel the mountain that they consider to be Mount Zion? Raise your hand. Okay, like a half a dozen of you. All right. Keep your hand up. Keep your hand up. If you've seen it, if you've seen it. For those of you with your hands up, when you saw it in the flesh. Did it spark in your heart? This is the most joyful thing I've ever seen. I'm going to go ahead and put my hand down. Yeah. Okay. So is the Bible lying to us this morning? Says that. Mount Zion, this great elevation, this place of the great king, the place of his palaces, this great God is greatly to be placed. It's the joy of the whole world. That's what it says. I would venture to contend this morning. That the psalmist, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Is fully unaware. Of what Mount Zion really is. It's not a mountain with a palace or a temple on it. But that Mount Zion is representative of God's work among his people to redeem them to himself. Now. Different question, you don't have to have a show of hands, but how many of us have seen the redeemed life in Christ? I've seen it. And those of us who've truly seen the redeemed life in Christ. Would be hard pressed to say that we've ever seen or experienced anything that is more joyful than that. It's the joy of the whole world. To see the work that Christ does in people when he saves them. It's remarkable. And so there's this mountain that's not really a mountain. And here this mountain has a description that it is the, the, the God within. Listen to this. The mountain itself is not the stronghold. You would think normally when you're talking about mountains and palaces and defenses and all kinds of. Well, the mountain itself is the, really the stronghold because that's the thing that you can't get past. Notice. God. In her palaces 
has made himself known as a stronghold. God is the stronghold in the palace being built in Zion. So what does Paul talk about the church in the New Testament? We are a building being built up. Whose foundation is what? Jesus. Chief cornerstone. Being laid out on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. Each piece being fitted together. What else does it say about us in the New Testament? That we are a city set up on a hill. A city not made with hands. Whose foundation is God himself. God in the palace of Zion. Well, what's the palace of Zion? The building being built on the mountain that is Christ. Well, what is that? That is us. And am I the stronghold of the kingdom? No. God has made himself known in the palace of Zion to be the stronghold. I have strength because God is my strength in salvation. It's a beautiful thing that's happening here. Mount Zion, and we're going to get to this. I want to unpack this in just a minute. Mount Zion throughout the Old Testament is a place of both salvation and a place of judgment. I love the ending of, um, of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And if you've not read it, uh, spoiler alert from the past like 300 some odd years. Sorry if you've missed it. It's been out for a while. So that's your own fault. But as they get ready to enter into this holy Mount Zion, they get to enter into the heavenly realm. And there was this one who took the pathway that was not the right pathway. And he was cast out. And there was a door on the side where he was cast into the place of destruction. And he said, and then I realized that there was a way to destruction. Even at the gate of Zion. Zion is a place both of salvation and of judgment. Notice what it says here. It says the kings come and they're amazed by it. People are saved in it. People find stronghold in it because of the presence of the Lord. People find joy in it. People find praise of God in it. All of these are, are extensions of the notion of salvation. But then it says that these kings of the other nations come and they see it and they're amazed by it. But then they become terrified and they flee away and panic sees them. And this wind comes in and it's like breaking a part of the ships and, and all of these things have happened. And so it's, it's a place... Where you come, hear me, hear me this morning. Zion is a place where you come face to face with the truth of the gospel of God. And the gospel does two things and two things only. We try to complicate the gospel. Gospel is real easy. It does two things and two things only. Either the gospel redeems you from your sin and transforms you from the inside out. Or the gospel stands as judgment against your rebellious, stiff-necked heart and casts you away from the loving presence of God. That's what the gospel does. And so when you come into the presence of God Almighty... 
in Mount Zion, which is the place of redemption. It's the notion of Christ's gospel and his people that are being redeemed. Either you yourself are redeemed and you're amazed and it's praiseworthy or you flee away in terror. That's the only options that you have. So what I want us to see, see then is there's this hard shift in the middle of this psalm. Beginning in verse 9, there is a contemplating of the mercy of God. The, the psalmist is approaching this from the perspective of someone who is a citizen of Mount Zion, who has been transformed by the truth, who is in covenant relationship with God, someone who belongs in this great place, in the presence of the Almighty. And so I want us to consider the greatness of God's loving kindness. And there in your notes, loving kindness is in quotes because it's a really unique Hebrew word. Really unique Hebrew word. And it's translated a lot of different ways, depending on what kind of version of the new of, of the of the English text you have. Some places it's loving kindness some places it's mercy. There's a few other ways that it gets translated. The word itself means mercy filled love. That's what it means. It means mercy filled love. Now, why do we have to make that emphasis? Why do we have to make that point? Because we know just functionally in life. There's a lot of different kinds of love. There's just a lot of different expressions of love. We get that. I'll just I'll just run through some sentences that are true real quick about my life to quickly illustrate that we understand there are different kinds of love. I love being the pastor of Sylvania Church. I do. I love my good friend, and I'm scanning the room for him, and I'm saying, there he is. Is he back there? No, I see. Yes, there he is. I love my very good friend, Chad Barnes. I do. I love Amanda Dancy. Now, Chad will be the first one to tell you, I do not love Chad Barnes the way that I love Amanda Dancing. And not to be weird, because if I did, I could not love being the pastor at Sylvania Church. <laughs> there would be lots of problems. But so far, all three of these sentences are entirely true, and I haven't changed the words in any of them. I love being the pastor at Sylvania Church. I love my good friend, Chad Barnes. I love my wife, Amanda Dancing. I love, or ish, playing the sport of basketball. I do. And my body hates it when I do it, but I love it. Now, none of those loves are the same kind of love. They're not. My love for this church and the work that I do here is not exactly the same as the kind of love that I have for my good friend, Chad. None of it's anywhere close to the kind of love that I have for my wife. And all of those things reign superior to the love that I have of playing a particular sport. But I, I spoke truth. And we could keep doing that. 
And I could keep using the word love, and it would keep meaning a lot of different things. So here in this text, they use a very specific word for love. Loving kindness, mercy. There's a lot of different ways it's translated. But the word means mercy-filled love. And notice what he says in verse 9. We have thought, and I'm going to translate it like that. We have thought on your mercy-filled love, O God. And then notice where he says, in the midst of your temple. So we went through Leviticus if you were here. The tabernacle was a precursor to what eventually became the temple. All the animal sacrifices and all of the different offerings and all of the feast day worship stuff connected to this reality of tabernacle and temple. The killing of animals, God's mercy filled love that he's destroying something else rather than destroying sinful human beings. And what does the psalmist say here after he contemplates the glory of Mount Zion and the greatness of God and this this the beauty of it, the splendor of it, the fact that God's a stronghold in it, the fact that it's a place of salvation and of judgment midway after doing all of that, he stops and he says, we contemplate, we have a great thought about your mercy filled love here in your temple, the place where sacrifice takes place, where things die so we don't have to because you're a merciful God who loves us and is willing to sacrifice something else so that we might have a right relationship with you. Do you see where this is going? And then notice what the psalmist does. He makes a shift. And and by the way, before we get there, I would encourage everyone to have a thought on the mercy-filled love of God. Like, take some time out of your day, every day, to contemplate the mercy-filled love of God. It's life-changing. And then notice the shift that happens right after that. As is your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. So God's name and God's praise go hand in hand. We're going back to the repetition of the first verse. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And then notice the second part of verse 10. And this is very profound. Your right hand is full of righteousness. I don't have a lot of time to get into it. But just know That in a metaphorical way, when it talks about God's right hand in the Old Testament, you can just go ahead and bet the bank on it that that is an Old Testament type and shadow of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Had a dear friend of mine. Way different way of his brain working than mine when we were in Ph.D. program together. He was an Old Testament Hebrew scholar. Lord bless all of them who exist on the earth. And he wrote his dissertation on. The right hand of God. As allegorical metaphor 
for the person and work of Jesus. And he connected all the uses of it in the Old Testament with indirect references to it in the New Testament. And it was amazing. Because here's the deal. Everywhere you see the the outstretched arm of God, the right hand of God through a strong and mighty outstretched arm, which in the Middle Eastern context would have been the right hand. God is overthrowing some idol, some fake God, some false pagan nation, or he's delivering his people out of some danger or their sin. Or he's bringing discipline into their life so that they'll repent and they'll follow the covenant as they should. All pointing us to the glory of what Christ has done. And so right here where it says your right hand is full of righteousness. Well, we know the New Testament makes the declaration that the righteousness of God is Jesus Christ himself. Where is Christ per the New Testament in his spatial location right now? He's seated at the right hand of the father doing what? Making intercession for us. So we see that Christ is here. And then I want you to see as it closes in this section, the glory of Mount Zion itself. There's two things that it points to about Zion. That we should be. Overwhelmed by first is its size. Walk about Zion and go around her. Count her towers. Things huge. There's other places in the Old Testament that give even greater descriptions of Mount Zion, especially in the spiritual reality of Mount Zion. And Ezekiel has a few things and some others, but there's this picture of the occupation and the living space of Mount Zion being massive, overwhelmingly large. By the way, too large for the actual physical space of the mountain in Israel. Just want to throw that out there. Like they're clearly talking about something else. That mountain is not big enough for what the Old and New Testament usually talks about when it talks about this. We should be overwhelmed by the size of it. Do you know what I'm overwhelmed by when I consider the size of it is the size of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as it exists on earth today. The number is not countable, really, because we just don't know. A billion and a half some odd people ish in China. If you look at their stats on the number of people who would be considered Christian in China, it's incredibly low. We know that that number is astronomically huge in the underground church. We know that there are lighthouses of the gospel and representatives of the Christian church throughout almost all of the world. Right now, within this 24 hour block of time on our globe, literally billions of people. Are praising the name of Jesus. That's that's amazing. The sheer size of it is incredible. But you know what else is spoken here about the praiseworthiness of of and this contemplation of God's mercy as it relates to Zion, Mount Zion, is not only its size but its strength. Consider her ramparts. Go through her palaces. 
Palace and ramparts are pictures of military might and strength. It's where the king rules from. It's where warfare takes place. It's where the provision of battle is to be had. And when you consider the strength of the church of the living God in this world, our planet and its history especially in a modern sense, would not be anything like what it is absent the church of Jesus Christ. Just as a history person, the establishment of the modern university, the modern hospital system, the modern adoption slash orphanage system, all of those things find their greatest root In the work that the church has done throughout its ages. Can you imagine what our world would be like without centers of higher learning? Centers of health care. Centers of adoption and provision for those who've been orphaned. I I can't even begin to fathom how terrible of a place our planet would be without those things. Now... Some terrible things have happened through those things in spite of the great gifts that they are. But can you imagine in Roman culture, when the church was born, they had a practice called abandonment. You think abortion's bad. The Romans practiced abandonment. They would have a child. Something was wrong with the child. They didn't want the child. The child didn't need to be found out. They would take the infant to the side of the mountain. They'd lay the infant on the side of the mountain. And they say, if the gods want this child to live, then the gods will save this child. And they left the child in the elements to the beast and to the cold and to the winds and to the rains and just walked away. And a lot of kids died like that. You know how we got our modern orphanage system? Christians said, these children cannot die. And they would go get them off the side of a mountain and they would take them into homes. And when they got enough kids together, they would make a home for all those kids. And somebody would help those kids stay alive. Birth of the modern adoption, fostering orphanage system. Can you imagine what our world would be like? How weak and broken and frail our world would be without the residual effects that the gospel has had on this planet. When you look around and you see the strength of the church of Jesus Christ, it should cause you to marvel when you contemplate the mercy filled love of God. That he would take wretches like us and then save us and then use us to make this planet a better place. Hmm. It's wonderful. So let's ask the question then as we get ready to close this morning. Why is Mount Zion in this psalm connected to God's mercy? Because I know I've connected it to Jesus and some of you I can tell are going, I just don't know if that's where we need to go with this. So I wanted to kind of talk through it from the Old and then the New Testament reality. Notice, one, that while the concept of Zion, Zion just in general... Is common in the Old Testament. It's probably, I think it's used 155 times, if I remember my reading correctly. Zion's super common in the Old Testament. The designation Mount Zion as a much more particular, specific reality to the notion of Zion 
It's much, it's much rarer, way less common. Depending on who you read and depending on which translation of the Hebrew text they're using, at most 19 times in the entire Old Testament. This idea of Mount Zion. We got two of them today in Hebrews, I mean, in uh, Psalm 48. Depending on which version of the Hebrew text you're using, maybe as few as 11. That it makes reference to Mount Zion in the Hebrew Old Testament. So, Philip, why are you pointing that out? And I give you a list of some of them and you can go and look some of these up later. But typically, when the Mount Zion designation is used in the Old Testament, it's with with reference to one of three things. One. It's with a reference to salvation, God saving his people. Two, it's used with the notion of some remnant that God is keeping for himself. Or three, it's some expression of deliverance, not salvation generically, but salvation specifically deliverance from some enemy or circumstance that's happening in that moment. When you see the Mount Zion references in the Old Testament, it's salvation, it's remnant, it's deliverance. And I want us to take a look at one of these just so you can see how the New Testament uses this to see that I'm not just this crazy off base guy trying to find Jesus on every page because Jesus is actually on every page. Flip over to everybody's favorite Old Testament minor prophet, Joel. If you have a hard time knowing where Joel is, it's on page 864 in my copy of God's word. But Joel chapter two. Joel chapter two. And before we get to verse 32, which is where we want to land, I want to back us all the way back up to verse 28 so we can get a little context of what Joel's talking about. Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 28. If you were to back way up in the chapter, there's this terrible visitation of God. He's bringing his judgment on people, but he promises to deliver. He's bringing judgment on the world, but he promises to deliver his people. And there's going to be just this cataclysmic reality of things that are happening. And then verse 28, it will come about after this. And and depending on how you translate it, um, that that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And if you want a reference to that, you're like, wow, that sounds really familiar. Acts chapter 2, verses 17 through 21. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky And on the earth, blood, fire and columns of smoke, the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. All right. If you want reference to that, that's the eschatological realities talked about in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered, or an even better translation, will be saved. Pause. It will come about that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Does that sound familiar? Apostle Paul, Romans 10, 
Verse 13. We're going to look at that in just a second. But notice how much more Joel says after that. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Salvation and deliverance for a remnant. Flip forward. Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 10. I want us to see it. I want us to see it. Romans chapter 10. We know that that quote is from verse 13. We'll back it up just a little bit for context. Verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. He's speaking about the nation of Israel and his brothers and his brothers who should know Christ but don't. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ, listen to this, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God. God's great right hand is full of righteousness. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall have to live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with a mouth a person confesses, resulting in salvation... For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches to all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. I just want to pause. If your Bible has those really cool little side column notes and it has the little letters and it tells you where they found that from. Because the big blocks tell you that they're directly quoting the Old Testament. You know what he just quoted? Joel chapter 2 verse 32. And we know that Joel was talking about Mount Zion. And what did Paul do with that in the New Testament? Jesus and his people is the establishment of what truly is Mount Zion. That's what it is. The righteousness of Jesus brings a remnant of people out of destruction and into deliverance. And that people praises him for all eternity because God himself, through the work of Christ, is their great stronghold. And you know what? The elevations of that mountain, because it's made up of all the beautiful faces of the people that God has saved, is lovely indeed. It's beautiful. And then I want you to see one other thing. Flip over to everybody's favorite, favorite book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, chapter 14. Chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Now, I want to close where we see this picture because Mount Zion is made reference to in the New Testament as well. And then I looked, verse 1 of chapter 14, and then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. And with him, 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. 
And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. And they're the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. And they are blameless. And I want to pause because a whole lot of stuff happens with this text. That's just not great. And because we don't have just a fully orbed. Comprehensive view of the Old Testament in mind when we read this, which is what we need to have when we read this. We try to make some applications that are faulty here. And we try to make numbers literal and we try to make other stuff not literal, you know, and I've I've made that when we went through Revelation, anytime I reference Revelation, I make the point of going, look, you you can't you can't live in a weird world where every number has to be literal. And then the scorpions are helicopters. You can't do that. Either read it hyper literal or don't read it hyper. You can't like blend the two systems. Well, this is going to be allegorical because I don't want a seven headed dragon with ten horns to come up on the beach and eat everybody. So that's got to represent like kings or something. But it's got to be literally 144,000 people. Like because it's a number. And so, you know, numbers are real. But scorpions are helicopters. Like, no, don't do that. Like, either read it figuratively like apocalyptic literature or read it literally like a newspaper. Don't do both of those. So what's happening here is they we read this and we read it hyper-literally and we don't take the metaphorical realities of the Old Testament together. And we have the Lamb standing on Mount Zion and with Him is this very comprehensive number of perfection, this great group of people who have been marked out as His people. And there's this great praise song that they sing that no one else can sing. The angels can't sing it. The representatives of the Old Covenant uh, reality can't sing it. Only those who've truly been purchased in the new covenant reality can sing it. And these people, listen to what it, listen to what it says about them. These people are the ones who've not defiled themselves with women and they've remained chaste. What does that mean? Well, there's a lot of things the church has tried to make that mean over the years that it doesn't mean. One of the chief metaphors in the Old Testament for God's relationship with his covenant people. And when they would abandon him and the covenant was the language of being married and them committing spiritual adultery. They defiled themselves with other idols. They'd gone after spiritual harlotry. This group of people had not abandoned Christ to worship idols. That's what that's talking about. It's not talking about another class of people who chose the life of celibacy and not getting married. That's not what this is talking about. It's talking about those who fulfilled what Israel should have fulfilled and remain faithful to the one true God through Christ Jesus. And they get marked out by God with a salvific name on their forehead. And where do they meet their God to sing praises to him? Mount Zion. And what is Mount Zion? It's the gathering together of all of God's People doing what? Singing a new song that no one has ever heard. The song of the risen lamb, which, by the way, friends. Is what we get to do together. Every single Sunday. 
It's a song that I couldn't sing before. Because I was on the outside looking in. My sin had created a separation between me and my God. And he had hidden his face from me that he would not see me. But God in his great mercy filled love poured his wrath out on Jesus and made a great exchange and put my wretched robes of sin on Christ and took the glorious robes of righteousness of Jesus and placed them on me. And he seated me in a heavenly place on a throne with his son. And he crowned me with glory and he crowned me with life. And he sat me down at his banquet table and he let me feast with his son. And he sealed me for this great inheritance through the Holy Spirit and He made me a co-heir with Christ, joint heir with Him so that I might now call God my Father and God might call me His Son and that He now loves me with the same love that He loves Jesus and He marked His name on my forehead and He invited me into His palace and now I sing a song of praise to Him that no one else can sing unless they've had that exact same experience and I am now a child of Mount Zion. Mm. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you. For Jesus Christ. Thank you. That he. Saves. To the uttermost. Father thank you. For your. Mercy. Filled. Love. And Father, thank you for the promise of Mount Zion that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, draw hearts to yourself. Mark your name on the forehead of your people. And cause their mouths to sing a song that no one else has ever been able to sing except those that are in Christ. For you are a great God. And you are greatly to be praised. In Jesus name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing a song of response together this morning.